This is the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast with Clinton Sanko, Baker Donaldson's e-discovery officer. In season one of Sitting with the C-Suite, Clinton and guests will explore the e-discovery industry's past, present, and future, largely through the eyes of the executives responsible for the technology and services underlying virtually every e-discovery project. Hello, I'm Clinton Sanko, and welcome to the Lean Discovery series, Sitting with the C-Suite, where we are committed to unraveling e-discovery one interview at a time. Today, we are joined by Ian Wilson, founder and CEO of Servient. Ian was a complex commercial litigator turned legal tech entrepreneur. Please join me as I welcome Ian to the show. Hey, Clinton. Good, good to see you. So, Ian, why don't we start with you walking us through Servient, the company, as it stands now, both in terms of the technology that you offer as well as the services? Well, Servient is um, primarily a software company. We have a, an e-discovery solution that is that takes you from processing all the way through production. So it's a, a complete end-to-end solution. And we have a, a particular focus on the uh, on integration of machine learning. So we've got over 10 years of R&D into the machine learning. So with us, machine learning is very much part of the fabric of the underlying solution as opposed to a, a plug-in. Uh, so the primary focus of serving is, is the development and delivery of that software solution. And then we've taken that those component parts and brought it into other legal use cases like uh, in compliance areas, say international trade compliance, things that take the components of e-discovery uh, but can be useful in other, you know, other, other workflows and use cases. Ian, I'm curious, we're going to get into a little bit of your background and some of the, the starting of Servient here in a few minutes, but what does the name Servient mean? Where did that name for your company come from? You know, there's really no uh, magical story behind it in that when we were founding the company way back, one of the things you want is a, is a short name with a dot .com, um, because that, that's a bit of a memorable name. So even back when we were starting the company 17 years ago, we there was still you know, a concern over your ability to get that short.com name. And given our legal background, as we went through terms, you know, Servient's actually a, a legal term, and it's a, a Servient in a state of an easement. So it actually is a legal term, but it sounds a little bit technical. What, it, what has come to mean a little bit un, un, unintentionally is as we see the machine learning really being the assistant of the attorney, the amplifying his work, it's, it's really that... that uh, that ability to be that assistant, but it, it really it started with with no particular meaning other than you know you've got to name your baby, and with a dot com it, it it made sense. So Ian, let me let me ask kind of out of the shoots how how are you doing kind of managing through the challenging times? I mean now we have work from home, we have all the uh, the economic things going on. How how are you doing, and how's the company doing? Kind of managing through the the COVID crisis and the other uh, things that we have going on in the world. Yeah, so it's certainly been an interesting, interesting challenge. You know, I practiced law back in the dot-com bust. Um, so I, I lived through that from the, from the legal industry world. And then, of course, Servient, we were, we were in, uh, in business through the financial crisis. And, and coming into this, it's, it, this is very different because I think it, you know, it deals with uh, health. So it deal, the, the stress and concern of your employees worried about their own health and the health of their family really makes this very different. So from an operational standpoint, it hasn't been that difficult for us because we kind of eat our own dog food. We, we run our business through cloud systems. So, you know, from a, like an accounting system, it's, we, we run everything from, from cloud systems. Um, so to shift, it wasn't that challenging, but to support the underlying and, and, and operate the business in a way that you know that there's a different type of stress on your employees really is a challenge. How do you make them comfortable? There was a worry about what, what does this mean? What does it mean to the future? I think that worry's kind of gone away as everyone's gotten comfortable with, with what's happening. But, and for us, we have operations in three continents. So we're in the US, the UK, and in India. So we had to take all of those operations also and make them remote since it's a global problem. But again, it's more so the, the emotional and support of the employees through this time that we're trying to uh, keep our focus on. And operations has really not been that challenging. 
Ian, for me, one of the things about starting this Sitting with the C-Suite uh, series that has been just really exciting for me as a professional has been for uh, when, I, when I get to talk to people that I've known for a long time in the industry like you. I met you years ago at Legal Tech, and, you know, we all have those off-site meetings at Legal Tech. And I remember meeting you many, many years ago. And, you know, from, from the standpoint of getting ready for these interviews, I do some research. And, and in looking back at your history, it really stood out to me that, that you you started your career clerking for a Supreme Court justice in, the, in Virginia, uh, Justice A. Christian Compton. Uh, he's a basketball star, a Navy veteran, looks like a big supporter of Washington and Lee University. And as I reflect on my legal career, we all have people that help to shape us and help to shape our vision of the law and what we can do and be as lawyers. Does anything stand out from your time clerking for Justice Thompson that helped to shape who you are as a lawyer and as an entrepreneur and as a leader? Yeah, I think, you know, Justice Compton was a, was a very well-known and respected um, leader in the, in the Virginia legal community. And when I clerked for, for Justice Compton, he had been on the court for I think almost 20 years. And, and before that, he, had, he was a well-known uh, judge, in, in, uh, trial judge. Uh, so I think anyone that that spent their initial years clerking, uh, I've never heard anybody say they regret that time. You know, there's plenty of time to try cases and do depositions and and work on legal tech. But that initial time that where you can get someone with in in with his experience is is something that I look back on and I never would have done anything different. Because of the length of his experience um, and kind of who he was, I, I think there's a few things that really I took from him. He had a, a, a very um, organized framework in the way that he thought through issues and decided cases um, and a very then disciplined. One of his main mantras was, you know, we're going to decide the case that's in front of us. We're not going to give an advisory opinion. And he was very, very stern on that. And you know, people and lawyers in Virginia know that Justice Common was was the stern justice. You didn't want to get on his his wrong side. But he had that kind of diligence, organized framework and discipline. And you think about his where he stood and the success that he had. I, I sometimes think back on that. Um, we fall down from that. I, you know, you don't have that discipline in your day. You don't have that that organized thought pattern. That I, that I found and learned from him. It also stands out to me what an early interest you took in the application of law and tech together. Uh, when I was looking at your, your bio, I see that, uh, that you founded DiscSense and a product of DiscSense was DiscLaw. Am I getting that correct? That's right. That's right. And so if I understand, so this is back in the early 1990s, this is 1992, uh, and this is, was digitized case law and digitized statutes. And we can all remember early in our career the prevalence of paper libraries. And I, one of the things that always stood out to me about paper libraries is going in and, you know, looking for the, for the code volume you needed. And the, there wasn't even like the, the little card stuck in the stack, you know, so you could never find it. Tell me a little bit about the founding of DiscSense, the problem that you saw that you were trying to solve, the, the, the kind of the process that you, that you went through in growing that company, and then the, the sale to West Publishing in 1998. You know, I think back on the problem that we were trying to solve, actually at, at that time when we, I started the company, I was probably 25, 26, and, and the problem I was trying to solve was pay my student loans. I was coming out of my clerkship and I was going into uh, practice law in a, in a litigation practice. And it, it, it really arose from my time at the Virginia Supreme Court because one of the things Justice Compton was responsible for was the publication of the opinion. So therefore his clerk was really responsible for that. Um, so I worked, when I clerked, I worked with you know, the, court, the official court reporter and the publication of the opinions into the, the official reporters. So there, that brought me into the IT department at the court and I worked with you know, how does that get into the typesetting and that type of thing back and back in the, the early 90s and also when i clerked i had a law library behind my desk you know i had the hopeful set of the virginia reports is in virginia there's no other law than the virginia law so you all you need from a law library is the virginia cases so you but i had that behind my desk so as i went on to be an associate i thought you know, I'd really like the fact that I could turn around and not spend my time in the law library. Uh, and knowing that the, da the data was digital in the court, uh, well, how about, you know, wh why can't we 
uh, build a product in that there will be a lot of attorneys at that point in the price point of Westlaw, Lexus, and, and those were early days for those systems, that there would be a lot of attorneys that in smaller law firms that would be interested in that. Originally, we intended just to image the case reports because there's a, you know, the court had digital records from a certain period, maybe back to 1985. Um, but in as I started, I talked to a professor at University of Richmond who told me, you know, the, the Air Force had digitized the Virginia case law and never really did anything with it. So I went back to the court and sure enough, I found somebody that said, oh yeah, yeah, that did happen years ago. And here's the backup tape of a mainframe with the case law back to you know, 1900. So what I then did is I just started up a company, went to uh, India with ship books and pallets of books to India to fill in the hole, built a, a search engine and started uh, selling subscriptions to Virginia lawyers. Now that, that became a lot bigger. We had thousands of, of law firms, so it was never intended to be other than something to, to pay off the loans. Um, but I, that, I really sparked my interest in, in legal tech. And in that company, what we did, we realized that I started off thinking it'd be nice to have that set of case law. But what I realized is there's so much more you can do with it from a search standpoint. But uh, the lawyers in that time, you know, I'm from a, a vintage that we were one of the early uh, classes that would have gone through formal electronic research training in law school. So when we started selling to lawyers, it was we were selling to a lot of people who the whole idea of searching electronic case law was different. So we knew we found that that there was a problem with the adoption, you know, and and, and actually harnessing the the ability of the of what the technology could give you. So we worked on natural language search where you could, instead of crafting a query, which the lawyers found difficult because they didn't have the experience in, in that, that they could just type in a question. And through, through natural language search, uh, the software was able to give them back a, a response. So I came to really learn that, that the adoption of technology in, in the legal tech is one of the prime challenges. Can you harness the real power of, of technology in a legal practice? And to do so, you got to make it approachable. You got to make it something that's that's easy uh, to use. But you want you don't want to lose the power of the technology. So, you know, we sold the company to West Publishing, and that was folded into Westlaw in the in the late '90s. So, Ian, you founded Servient in 2003 after working as a litigation partner at Herschler in Virginia, and as a real time of transition in the e-discovery space. I mean, I can remember back then you heard a lot of talk about, you know, blowbacks and, uh, you know, how do you search, you print the paper. Uh, that was a lot of the discussion going on, you know, in the early 2000s. Upon founding Servient, what was the key problem that you were honed in on? What was the key business legal issue that you saw that justified founding this company and kind of uh, moving forward with, with Servient? When we started Servient, the, the thought was that we were going to build on what we had done with Disclaw and had sold to Westlaw, and that e-discovery e, e was an emerging problem. Yet, in, in, say, 2003, there weren't a lot of solutions there. There were a few providers, but as you said, the, you know, that goes back to the marketing. I remember Kroll's marketing with all of the printers lined up and how many pages per minute you could blow back. And the solution literally was print it, and then if you were technology-oriented, scan it and do bibliographic coding. Just as we think today, just incredible, costly, and, and difficult solution. So at that time, we, we looked at it and thought, you know, e-discovery is going to be a search problem. So we could take some of the advanced search and apply to the evidence of a case what we did in the, the primary law. So that was the intent, to bring more advanced search to... The evidence in a case and obviously evolved after that, but that was the primary mission. You said in describing your time at uh, Dissense that one of the primary problems that you saw was adoption within the legal industry and getting lawyers to use the tools. What learning did you take from Dissense and apply it to uh, your, your servient in order to kind of increase adoption and get over that, that issue? You know, it's something that, that's, that's very much central to what we're doing right now. And that, you know, we released uh, our machine, supervised machine learning 
solution in 2008, 2009 timeframe. So you know, over 10 years ago and watched the challenge that has been the adoption of machine learning into the review process. So the struggle of adoption of machine learning into, into the e-discovery process is less about people not knowing or not, not able to use it. Uh, there are there's structural issues around it. There's risk and fear and a whole, whole number of different issues that we've seen over the last 10 years. But I think we've come to a point where there's more and more acceptance and use. There's certainly acceptance in the courts, we all know, acceptance. So there's a lot of acceptance and some of those problems have gone away. And now we're at, how do you widely adopt it? And it brings us back to the dissense experience. We're looking at how does how do we more widely get it adopted? And I, I believe I found the way that we did it with DiscLaw was we, um, allow the technology to operate the way that the lawyers operate, not force the lawyers to operate in the way that the technology operates. Um, so how can we build machine learning workflows into the natural workflow of the attorneys? That's what we've been doing a lot of R&D on and a lot of work. And I think that's where the, the future of where we're heading to allow for that use of supervised machine learning without the formal training, the formal, I've got to do these training sets and to make it more part of the underlying normal pattern of use. Uh, and can it, can it do it in a way that uh, runs in the background and brings helpful results back, even for the attorneys that aren't out uh, intending to use the machine learning? There's so much that we can do to aid in the understanding of the underlying data set by watching what an attorney is doing and having the machine learn and surface information. So I think we learned that, you know, we have to work the way the attorney works if we want it to be adopted and solve their problems. So that, that's really one of the, the key things that we're, we're focused on. Especially nowadays, you hear a lot about private equity within the e-discovery industry, whether that's private equity that's leading then with an IPO or multiple rounds of private equity. What has been your funding strategy for Servient? Are you fully privately owned? Or, and if so, what do you see as the benefits of, of whatever your ownership model is to the marketplace and the end consumers that are the corporate counsel? Well, I, I tell people that, that um, you know, our primary funding strategy is to have our clients fund our business. That's kind of traditional. But we like to, we think we build better technology if we do it with our clients. And we certainly, you know, like to operate the business in a way that, that we're operating as a, as a business. And we had the benefit of selling a prior company. So Servient was self-funded for, for a significant period of time. We are, we are private, you know, it's a very small ownership group within Servient. So one of the advantages is we, we control our own destiny. We're either responsible for the success or responsible for the failure, but we're responsible. So I think that's one of the that's one of the um, advantages, and, and I think in this time frame, um, with when you move in through and you work through these kind of economic shocks and crisis, the last place I would want to be is have is at the tail end of a growth round, when I'm executing on a burn plan. You know, historically that that has been trouble for companies. The need to then alter that plan, and this this was kind of an unfair process here because it was all, it happened all of a sudden. So if you're in the 12 to 18 months from your prior growth round and you're playing the, the multiple round growth, that next round's not there for you, but you're executing on a plan that's, that's a, a cash burn plan. So for us, we've kind of always tried to, to operate within our, our means. And, and in this current state, I think there's some, some advantage to that. Uh, it made it uh, easier for us to, I think, to readjust. And, you know, for us, Having control of the company, uh, supporting our employees was very important. We increased headcount. Uh, we didn't decrease at all. In fact, we we added headcount through this period because we found that there's some really good talent available. Um, so we were able to support our employees, and and having that, you know, I, I think is helpful. So, Ian, for as long as I can remember, one of the seemingly foundational principles of Servient from the outside looking in 
has been speed and scalability. I remember very early on in your early days, you talking about the Hadoop uh, way of, uh, of, of ensuring that searching was fast and reliable and just ultra-responsive. And I think some of that strategy has been because of the cloud deployment that you guys have, have leveraged over the years. But of course, I also know that with Linklaters, for instance, you guys have uh, rolled a, uh, an on-site or on-prem model out behind their firewall to allow them to roll the, the, the program out to 400 users across 13 different offices. Talk to us a little bit about Servient's deployment strategy and what you see as the advantages of it in different kinds of applications and different situations. You know, it, you're right, Clinton. One of the one of the early things that we focused on was really the scale because we saw the growing data volumes. So right from the very beginning, as we were developing, um, and especially to apply advanced machine learning to that scale of data, we knew we wanted to to make sure that we were focused on scale. So we were an early adopter of Hadoop back in 2007 timeframe, uh, even you know before uh, Cloudera was formed. Um, so some of the early, early um, uh, days of, of Hadoop, um, we've, we've, we've kind of evolved from that. So we, we're not a Hadoop based system like most people today, but that, that parallel execution, that the, the architecture to, to run things in parallel um, really set a nice stage for us to move to a cloud native architecture. And so we've been on that for uh, quite some time. And when I say cloud native, I, I, I think there's a real difference between a lift and shift of an application to the cloud and something that is built uh, to really run on the cloud. So we're, we're all about microservices. Uh, our system runs in containers, we use uh, you know, big user of Kubernetes. Um, so uh, allowing the system to really, to really live on the cloud is an important thing to, to scale. And, and then you're allowed, you allows you to use you know, a lot more power uh, that you need in some of the more advanced machine learning techniques. From a deployment standpoint, we're hundred percent cloud at this point because of that. That's really just, that's our belief. And we do have dedicated instances where we run the cloud system on behalf of enterprise clients or, or large law firms. And in that setting, it may be the enterprise's own cloud account. So they they may have you know, a few different accounts. You know, they have some workflows, uh, workloads running on AWS, others on Google Cloud, others on Azure. Uh, so that the typical way there, if it's a dedicated instance, is for, for the law firm or the corporation to, to provision an account and we run that account for them, but it's really within their own security fabric. And because of our kind of, that we're built for cloud orchestration, we can run multiple instances and support those in a very efficient way. So we have our own, we have our multi-tenant SaaS, but we also have dedicated instances that we run on behalf of, of clients that, and, in, and if it's a dedicated instance, you get more um, flexibility to, to really integrate with the back end. So if we're going to integrate with, with enterprise systems, it, it gives you more flexibility than, than a, uh, a multi-tenant. And in other settings, a multi-tenant is really the best and most efficient way. But we support both of those, but, but really we've moved away from the support of, of like a uh, behind the, the firewall data center um, because you lose so much of the benefit that the cloud brings when you, when you really got a, a cloud native system. You mentioned machine learning in your answer, Ian, and looking at, at Servian, it touts a proprietary ensemble-based machine learning that allows for transparency and statistical validation. Of course, in the e-discovery community, buyers of technology are inundated with claims around machine learning and how it can help in particular instances, particular cases, particular industries. Unpack for us a little bit about Servient's machine learning strategy. What, you know, what, what is the key points that you would want our listeners to understand about your machine learning strategy and implementation in your particular tool? Well, first of all, one of the keys is that it is, is supervised machine learning is really the core that uh, it fits under. And, and recall the first company that we had um, that I talked a little bit about that we sold to West Publishing 
was doing natural language search. Back in those days, it was latent semantic indexing. This is kind of a pretty old technology. You know, I think it was patented by Bell Labs in the early 80s. But that, that underlying technology is very different, we found, because our initial intent as we started the company to, was to leverage the technology that we had built before. But what we found is document similarity really wasn't up to the task in, in diverse types of files, we have large documents and small documents. And we've got short emails and long PDFs. We have different file types, some that are in sentence form, some that aren't. And now with a lot of chat and that type of short messages, you have a lot of diverse types. So looking at the problem on a document by document basis just didn't deliver the, um, the results that we wanted. So, you know, we've been at this now, I think over 10 years, and our machine learning has evolved, but it has still the same theme in that we don't tie ourselves to the four corners of the text of a document. We think that lawyers make judgments on information about the document as well as what is on the document. So who sent an email? Who, who, who was it sent to? What's the time frame? That kind of information about the document, we fold into our supervised models, as well as a lot of text analytics that are drawn out. And over the years, we've evolved to improve. And as, as the technologies evolve, such as the recent, uh, like the BERT um, and the aftermath of you know, the contextual word representations. So we can fold that kind of understanding into the, into the machine learning uh, models, um, but we we fold all that information using an ensemble, which looks at the problem in many different ways, and gives different outputs, and then pulls that together into an individual score. We found that was the best way that we could get beyond the four corners of the document and bring that information, and in. it substantially increased the accuracy of the learning. It also let us let us bring in the structure of the of the conversation. So. Very early on, we were including the parents and attachments and also all the information from the thread. So we were learning from the conversation structure, the dialogue of the conversation, which has become very important in the chat, applying um, machine learning to Slack and Teams, and which is which is really becoming an important trend in the in the industry. But so folding all that information in with an ensemble is really what's at the core of, of Serbian and using some of the, as the advances in, in natural language, using that to better the understanding of the data. So ensemble means both the text of the document itself plus the metadata plus the conversation dialogue structure to all kind of pull together a score for the document that accounts for all those, those variables. Right, so there are independent scores, and there might be multiple scores on the text too. We may we look at we look at maybe certain features of the text. We look at the people, places, and things. Take a named entity recognition would be an example of an NLP task, but you can take that information and look at the machine learning problem in a different way. So I, I kind of try to explain to people almost like um, if in medicine, if you if you have you go to a doctor for a diagnosis. And one doctor tells you this is your diagnosis. Um, you go to a second doctor and he tells you the same thing. You have more confidence in that diagnosis. So you've got a committee of experts. So with this, if, if you run the separate information in separate machine learning, get separate machine learning outputs from it, it basically serves as a committee of experts. So then we can, we can query the committee of experts to get a more uh, we can fold more information in and have a more reliable result. Um, so it's kind of a, if you think about a multi-layered kind of committee of experts is really what's what's at the, the core. And it was the early research that we did 10 years ago that kind of led us in that direction. It also really goes on to, well, execution because we can run all these models in, in parallel, which allows for very quick turns. So that with the machine continuously learning, you know, the, our rounds will execute in a matter of, of a minute or a couple of minutes, and you'll get a new score of the entire corpus. So it's something that allows the users then to interact directly with the machine, and you're not waiting overnight or, or something to run, you know, outside. It's really tuned to run at great speed.
In preparing I, for today's interview, I read about Servian's Centric Search, which I understand was designed to allow legal teams to remove non-responsive data even pre-processing so it never even makes it into the queue. You said once regarding this that, quote, the power of Centric Search lies in the empowerment of counsel and clients to direct the data narrowing process because they possess the knowledge of the case and are in the best position to create a defensible strategy to identify relevant records and thereby control the cost of electronic discovery, end quote. This concept of, of negative reduction, removing things from the corpus before you ever have to deal with them downstream is a, is a very important and uh, critical theme as we, as we look to reduce data volumes and reduce thereby the cost to the end client of the e-discovery process. Walk us through the centric search process and how you're seeing trial teams use that in productive ways to save their clients money on e-discovery projects. Well, this is one of the things that we think is a distinguishing characteristic of our cloud system because we have an integrated ECA. And in fact, we've got an integrated archive that sits behind that ECA so that data that comes in is only, you only have one copy of that data and you can use it and reuse it in multiple cases, multiple matters. So it's not just a review system. And I don't think it's good practice to take a large set of data and put it in the review system and then try to triage it down because ultimately you have to, you have to work your case based on what's in your review system. So you don't want all of the relevant information in your review system. The integrated ECA was an early project for us. As we, we started the company, we built a review system and we quickly saw that um, the reviews that were ongoing, they typically ended with about 20% of the data set being relevant. That was after the lawyers had applied search terms in the initial stage. And the thought of, of the centric search of the ECA system, which we now call uh, search and call, is really to allow the lawyers uh, to work with the data. So the idea was the lawyers, if they were able to test and work their search criteria, could form more informed criteria. And then they could also then do statistical validation of the search query. So the idea was to give better tools for that, which would allow the lawyers to be more effective in the culling. Uh, what we found was the lawyers still didn't really work on culling. It's still, a, and today it's still very much a yellow pad. So there's give me the, the keywords and we're gonna push them into the review system. And it does reduce, it still reduces usually at a similar uh, prevalence rate. You still see that kind of 20% after you've um, keyword. So the lawyers that do spend the time to work and negotiate and test their search and do it in an iterative way, um, when, it, when it's integrated, you can, you can iteratively uh, promote the data for review. So you can start with a very, very narrow, tailored search. Push that. It's not one. It's not a one-shot deal because you're not applying this search to some processing engine that you don't have control of. So then you can go in an iterative basis and push it through. Um, where we've evolved to is really uh, the belief that the true answer to this problem lies in machine learning. And the use of to allow the use of that ECA with machine learning. So we call it technology assisted culling. That's where you can still negotiate and use your search terms in the ECA portion of the process flow and move those forward and go ahead with your work. But you can then turn the machine learning technology back against the main corpus. So once you train it, you can turn it back against the corpus and identify those documents with the probability of relevance that didn't hit your keywords. Or you can just use the, the machine learning from the beginning. So you can push a training set forward into the review system and turn it back and start a continuous process where you're pulling the relevant documents out of the corpus. Those are, the, I think, the, the workflows that really are kind of a, more of a future of what we should be doing but today we still see a list of keywords in at 20% responsiveness, and then you're applying machine learning on top of that, and no one's going back to figure out what we missed. So I think, I think having that integrated, integrated ECA that supports machine learning at scale, so we can turn it back, 
really allows for that negative culling in a, a much uh, more effective way. But I, I don't believe the profession's there yet. We've gotten to the point where there, there's machine learning in review, but very little on the whole corpus. So if I understand, you, you've laid out two different, two different frameworks. One is you process your data, maybe you negotiate some search terms, you promote those in the review, but as you train that review set, you can point that learning back to the bigger corpus and then pull up into review things that were not search responsive, but that have similar characteristics to those things that you identified as responsive or important. That's one workflow, is it? Did I understand that? Correct. Correct. And then the other would be, instead of thinking about machine learning as applied to just the corpus that you promote into the review tool, you actually promote smaller data up into the review tool and then allow that to educate and then start to identify the important documents from the larger corpus to allow that iterative process to be essentially applied to the bigger document set as opposed to a smaller set of search term or otherwise restricted documents within review. Yeah, correct, correct. And then, and then you can blend that with some uh, cert, so you can give some visibility to your opponent if necessary for your own, you know, uh, comfort level, uh, but you can be much more targeted with that overlying search because you've, you've gone through a statistically validated machine learning, machine learning workflow to identify the relevant. I, I think, I think you get a much more, a much greater recall on the overall corpus because no one's calculating the recall loss on the culling stage as well as the recall loss on the collection stage. Those are, those are, those are um, uh, validations that we don't usually do, but you're, so you're, you're losing recall at the culling stage, especially if your prevalence in the data set in the review is high, but there's a good likelihood that you've significantly reduced the recall on the whole, cor on the whole corpus. So you would espouse more so than a negative calling strategy to remove the non-responsive documents, taking machine learning and applying it to a larger corpus of, of potentially responsive documents to, to identify the, the, the actual important and relevant documents within the matter. Yes, yes, and that would be the best use of the available technology. But there's obviously structural issues um, in terms of cost, historic processing costs, You've got the involvement of uh, the, the transparency. Uh, so there are some structural problems, but if we, if we look at just purely what technology application would find the most relevant documents from the corpus with the least amount of review cost, it's certainly going, it's certainly going machine learning from the very beginning. Ian, information governance has been a key traveling companion to e-discovery for many years now. It, from the very beginning, in a lot of ways, information governance has a huge impact on e-discovery because it, from, from an organization standpoint, determines what data is actually available when a litigation event occurs. Of course, information governance implies both management of data, but also compliance activities. If, if you were talking with an in-house lawyer that was looking at their information governance program and determining how to make it better or how to kind of get it off the ground in a, in a more effective way, what would you advise them on how to tackle that information governance just programmatic issues generally, I mean, because they're so big. Uh, and then specifically, what's the right mix of technology imp implementation, process and policy and staffing? Because the combination of those things will determine the, uh, the viability and effectiveness of an information governance program. The thing in your question that's really insightful is that it's so big. One of the problems as you get into governance is that project can be too big to be feasible. And that you see people trying to, you know, say, get into document retention, some kind of classification. Um, but in a large enterprise, when, when you understand the magnitude of the data and the, the variety of the data, those tasks become a very large project. And there's always a question of the return on investment. You know, we believe information governance certainly helps. Um, but sometimes you see there's a difficulty getting the budget actually approved for those kind of projects. Where we've had success is where the in-house counsel have really come at it in a targeted way to prove the efficacy of that governance project. Uh, one example I'll give you is um, at, at Halliburton. 
where the head of litigation at Halliburton, who had a very forward-looking approach and was looking at information governance, but picked a very targeted um, area that was a pain point for them, and that was international trade compliance. And as we looked, as he looked at our technology, he believed it would work for international trade compliance. So international trade compliance would be where every product that is shipped internationally, um, and in Halliburton's case, that's millions, millions of products, requires uh, tariff coding. So you kind of review the information about the product and you assign it the tariff code, which has legal risk to it because that, that governs what duties you pay. You can get audited. Um, there's pro it's problematic, especially for large companies for compliance reasons, that, that question of what's the appropriate tariff code for the product, you end up seeing you have large groups of people that they're doing that full time. So we took our e-discovery system, uh, which is really kind of, because it's a platform system, we were able to modify it quickly, about six weeks, and turn it into an international trade compliance process flow. We trained the, the models on five years of products, shipments, and now, and, and tied it into, as I said, the integrating into those enterprise systems, tied it into the enterprise systems, and now products that are shipped will automatically suggest, using continuous active learning, suggest the appropriate the appropriate tariff code. So that you 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 take one compliance project that may be a particular pain point and prove its efficacy because it's workable. From that, you gain support to then broaden into others. But to take on information governance as a, a front, you know, run right into it, it can be it can be too big to actually get over the line. As it's been our experience. You were paraphrased in a 2016 interview with CIO Review as advocating measuring the effectiveness of a technological implementation to determine, uh, to your point earlier, if you're getting an ROI from these new and innovative technologies that you implement as a company. Uh, in the same article, they quoted you as saying, without measurement, we cannot evaluate the effect that new technology and process changes will deliver. If you were sitting down with in-house counsel and looking forward, they were to say to you, Ian, what should we be measuring within our e-discovery program in order to determine if we roll out a particular piece of, so of, of software, the effect that it has, what are the two or three key things that you would tell them, start measuring this tomorrow so that you know if you're improving your e-discovery program? Well, I, I think a, a couple of things. One is if, if you are going to go into like an enterprise context, what we found is that they do have difficulty measuring cost, even on an e-discovery basis. A lot of times that, that e-discovery, that legal spend analysis, when that spend is allocated across different divisions, across uh, you know, different areas, it's difficult even to get the allocation together but if you can get the allocation together, you need to be granular into what are you, what impact are you going to have on that flow? So you need to know things like how much is that review cost and that granular basis, you know, how much, how, how much are the various different elements of cost? And in a larger enterprise, that can be difficult to get that initial measurement. So just just the fundamental costs, if there is a particular ROI that you're trying to achieve with the technology, if you don't have the underlying financial information, then it's very hard for you to prove your return. The second is when we're doing machine learning, though, and we're doing um, we're changing an existing manual workflow. Let's take that to international trade compliance. It's important to measure the accuracy of the current manual system. Now, it's not only lawyers that think they're perfect. Employees also think they're perfect. They don't make mistakes in the decisions that they make. So if you're going to input some uh, machine learning workflow in place, I think it's very important to measure the effectiveness of the machine learning output against the machine, the, the accuracy of the, of the uh, initial manual process. So you get some pushback on that. Um, because what happens when you when you put a an, uh, machine learning workflow together, uh, you're going to surface prior mistakes. 
But I think that's very important when you're calculating the ROI because the ROI might not just be financial. Uh, it can be risk, it can be efficiency, not necessarily directly financial. You may be allocating those same costs to some other place, but if you want to measure its effectiveness, it's like an e-discovery project. You have to you have to measure it statistically. But start by measuring the effectiveness of manual, um, and then compare that against your machine learning enabled work. I have three questions that I like to ask all my guests so that we have a nice uh, point of comparison about what you what you're reading and what you're interested in. My first one is. Who is a business leader that you admire, and what are the particular qualities about that business leader that makes you admire them? You know, it's an interesting question because you think about the, you know, who are the well-known leaders, and it's hard to come up with one today. You know, maybe we've got a vacuum of leadership out there. Um, when I think about business leaders, I, I, what I, what I'm thinking is, you know, I have I have uh, two daughters that just uh, graduated from college and are entering the workforce. I've been telling them about the importance of finding a mentor. And, and I, I realize now in reflection how important that is and how lucky somebody is if they do have a mentor that, that really takes a, an interest. In my early career, I had a great, I had a great mentor, uh, Rick Widoff, in, uh, as an attorney in Richmond. He was president of the local bar, elder in his church, devoted family person, and a great lawyer. So I learned an awful, realizing now years and years after, and I look back, I learned a lot from him, not, not about the practice of law, but just about life. And so I have a great uh, deal of respect uh, for him and others like him that have that kind of centered, you know, family, you know, well-grounded way about their life. What is the last podcast you listened to, even if it's a guilty pleasure? You know, this kind of shows, uh, you know, I'm... Uh, I'm a tech geek, right? So, so the podcast I'm listening to would be like Mac Break Weekly, <laughs> which is more guilty pleasure because it's just about gadgets. I think I think tech and then and then tech business. I'm also inter in, interested in entrepreneurship. Um, so, like, uh, you know, this week in startups, that kind of that kind of podcast is something that I, I'm I'm always interested in. You know, Reed Hoffman's uh, podcasts on. Uh, Masters of Scale, uh, those kind of things are, are, are definitely a, a, a great interest of mine. What's the last book you read, fiction or nonfiction, that you'd recommend to our listeners because you just couldn't put it down? Well, this is what I probably say. Uh, you know, my wife tells me I, I should get a hobby because I am obsessed with the, you know, what we do. So, honestly, again, being a, a geek. What I would be reading recently are research papers on contextual word representations, and I'm very interested in GPT-3. So those type of things, I find myself uh, interested where I don't have to think about us applying the technology, but to see what is evolving in the machine learning and artificial intelligence area is fascinating, fascinating area. And because we're in it, um, I find myself reading about that when I have time. So. I don't really have a good fiction book. I don't have a hobby. <laughs> Speaking of geeking out, can you give us any any hints on what's coming down the pike for Servient in terms of what next round of, of updates we might see and what we can expect to see from you uh, in the marketplace in the near future? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple things that we're um, rolling out that I think are, are interesting. Again, the, the theme of um, making it the technology more approachable, easier to use, we're ways to allow the machine to learn without formal training sets. And so I think you're going to see a lot of things coming from us around the, um, here in the near term, around the approachability of the technology and, and getting away from the, uh, the formal training sets. The second thing I think is important for us, and we, we rolled it out at, at Legal Tech this year, was the, um, is what we call Cloud Connect, and that's where we're directly connecting to the cloud sources. Uh, using the uh, the APIs, so directly connecting to Office 365 or G Suite or Slack. I think that's that's really a a, a wave of the the future. Uh, a lot of the data that we deal with today is in those is in those data sources. So being able to directly connect and consume that information in a more efficient way than 
a formal forensic collection and then processing and culling. You're seeing that come from us. We already have the Office 365 out, um, and you're going to see additional different systems and broadening the, the flexibility of, of what we're exposing in those cloud systems. And then finally, you know, I think one of the things that we see with COVID, Slack and Teams and chat were really important data sources. But if anything, we're, we're obviously speeding that usage. Um, so being able to fold that information in and perform machine learning on that short text is part of our kind of specialty. So uh, because of the way that we've built our machine learning, it was intended to fold these different types of information and learn from the structure of the dialogue. So being able to bring that information efficiently in and apply machine learning um, and, and ease kind of the current pain is something that's high on our, our radar screen. So you'll see some machine learning coming from us around the Teams and Slack area. All right, last question, Ian. What's the what's one great question that I should have asked you that was omitted from my outline? I don't know. May, maybe one question might be: Do you regret leaving the law practice and getting going two feet into to legal tech? You know, I had a I had an active trial practice for you know, 13, 14 years. I tried cases, argued cases in appellate courts, and did depositions, and you know, did uh, all kinds of did pro bono death penalty cases. So I, I did all kinds of things in that area and then finally made the decision that my passion lied in, in legal tech and made the jump. And I always ask myself, what would life be now that I'm 17 years out of law practice? And I, I, I think in, in general, I always come back to the fact that I enjoy what I do. This is what I'm interested in. When I have time to do to do things, I'm going to I'm reading about legal tech. So I, I'm still very much intrigued by that that cross-section of the law and technology. And I think there's so much more we can do for the legal profession with technology than where we are today. There's just so much power in the technology that we're not harnessing. So in general, I think I'm happy with what I'm doing. Thanks for joining us on the Lean Discovery Applied Podcast, Season 1, Sitting with the C-Suite. Please rate and review this podcast wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. You can also visit us online at www.leandiscoveryblog.com where we have additional content and videos of the interviews. Lean Discovery Applied is hosted by Clinton Sanko, eDiscovery Officer of Baker Donaldson. This program is not intended as an endorsement and does not constitute legal advice. Thanks to Baker Donaldson, a leader in innovative legal services, for supporting this podcast. To the guests and to you, the listener. See you next time.